tuned into How to OT, making research more accessible and more consumable for the occupational therapy practitioner. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. On today's episode of How to OT, I am joined by Melanie Hubbock. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Melanie is another member of the same cohort as me, the OTD 2020. And uh, I would say that Melanie is the smartest person in our cohort. And I honestly don't think anyone would be upset about me saying that. But you know how sometimes you'll interact with smart people and come away from that exchange feeling dumber? Melanie is not that way at all. You interact with her, and even though she's obviously extremely intelligent, you come away from any conversation or group work or learning experience feeling smarter yourself. Um, And I think part of that is due to your kindness and your ability to be a good listener. Wow. Much too nice of an intro, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> no, you're so welcome. Uh, it's been a pleasure to, to be in school with you. And to kind of introduce you to our listeners, can you share with us some of your previous experience doing research in your undergraduate and master's education as well? Is that right? Yeah. So prior to coming to OT school, I completed my bachelor's degree in chemistry from Regis University in Denver and then went on to earn my master's in metabolic biology from UC Berkeley. And really, that decision was driven by undergrad researching organic synthesis. Knew I didn't want to stay there, but still wanted and fell in love with research through that. Uh, within my master's degree, my research focused on uh, elucidating the role of a particular altered enzyme in colorectal cancer, uh, with implications then for novel therapeutic agents in the future. I really love the larger impact of bench science, but I found that I really missed the direct human connection and getting to see the immediate uh, impact of that research. And so I chose to apply then to OT school. Really, my hope was to apply this basic science background to translational research in a way that I could see a more direct impact uh, towards improving humanity as a whole and within specifically the field of hand therapy. So my goal then is to combine my love of research, education, and clinical practice uh, towards a career integrating all three. That sounds like the perfect combination of research and background, and it's really neat that all of that led you to OT. And I'm super excited to dive into your doctoral research project now and share that with our listeners and really with the world. Um, So your project was called The Patient's Journey. Predictors of Baseline and Discharge Disability, Pain, Workability, and Global Health After Occupational Therapy for Upper Extremity Dysfunction in Under and Uninsured Patient Population. I gotta take a breath after that title, Melanie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a mouthful. (laughs) Can you tell us about what led you to this research? Was there something or someone that inspired you to take on this project? Yeah, you know, the main motivation that drove this project really came from a frustration over the lack of patient outcome reports coming out of these student-based clinics. I see the utility and the role that these clinics play and the incredible potential uh, to fill a gap, increasing access to healthcare for marginalized populations that really could benefit from these services. But right now there's criticisms of them providing second-rate care. And so to really increase uh, the potential for these and acceptance of them, prevalence of them, we need to be reporting on these patient outcomes. Uh, The second 
motivation, I really became interested in personalized medicine from a pharmacological approach within my master's degree. But I see the carryover uh, in the field of rehabilitation and coming at it more from a psychosocial standpoint, I am really excited to get to start to contribute to that area of research. So with this study, those were some of your inspirations and motivations. What specific questions did you set out to answer or what problems were you trying to solve in doing this research? Yeah, I really set out with two main overarching aims. Uh, the first one being for evaluation and dissemination of our patient outcomes within our student hand therapy clinic towards one, adding to the body of research on patient outcomes from student-based clinics, as well as to form our own iterative changes towards providing better service for our own patients. Uh, the second was to evaluate outcomes in a way that allows for meaningful, replicable use with the understanding of primary predictors based on patient characteristics as well as factors of therapy within the patient's journey in the clinic. So starting at baseline, what's predicting whether they complete therapy versus self-discharge, and those who do complete therapy, what is predicting these outcomes, both on patient characteristic, but also what are we doing in therapy that's greatest contributing to these patient outcomes. What I love most about those purposes of your study is that any clinic in the world will want to answer those same questions and observe those same things. So I'm so excited for you to share with us this type of model and how you did it and hopefully how it can be replicated in clinics across the, the country. Yeah, that is a huge hope of this research, so I'm excited to get to share. First, can you tell me about the student hand clinic at WashU? Yeah, our student clinic, I use the term student-based intentionally. It's not student-run. We are under um, a lot of mentorship, so we have a primary faculty member who sponsors the lab, as well as another certified hand therapist who supervises all patient interactions, as well as treatment planning, documentation. So really, we have a strong mentor base in making it a student-based clinic, student therapist, but with a strong mentorship. We also use a unique model of peer mentorship. So our second year student, OT students, are the ones who provide direct patient care with the third year students who have gone on a level two field work within the field of hand therapy, coming back and getting to provide some of that peer mentorship as a, a step in between our licensed therapist mentorship. I love that design. Can you talk about how exactly student clinics increase access to care for marginalized populations? Yeah, so they provide pro bono services um, that otherwise would not be received either at all or in the quantity that's necessary. The other aspect is a lot of times these academic institutions carry this burden of cost for this care. So for instance, uh, within our own setup, Millikan hand center attached to Washington University sees patients with what they would call charity cases, so would see pro bono, but there's a limitation to how many sessions that individual is able to get. And with this, we are able to take some of that burden, able to provide more services, and then Millikan can potentially be able to see more patients or for even longer. So twofold access to care, but then also taking away some of that burden of cost. And you may have touched on this a little bit earlier, but I know that this is a, a problem that many student clinics face. How does a student clinic balance focusing on patient outcomes with focusing on student learning and education? Yeah, I think that is an excellent question. And I don't know that I necessarily have 
the answer, but I have a answer. From my perspective, it comes down to who are the stakeholders. So for instance, in the clinic model that I just described, the students and the mentors both and should care about um, both student learning as well as patient outcomes. Like in my experience, they do. But the focus of their research and which they would like to focus on is different. So I think for patient outcomes, that burden of evaluating those and disseminating those needs to be on these student therapists, just like it would be out in a fee-for-service clinic with licensed therapists. The burden of reporting, evaluating, investigating these patient outcomes is on the treating therapist. So I think it comes down to the stakeholders. Student clinics, I feel like I'm learning so much about student clinics right now, and they seem like they're awesome. I have really enjoyed what I've, my experience with them. That's great. So hopefully our listeners are beginning to understand how much work and time goes into doctoral research, and a lot of that time is devoted to background research and literature review. Can you share with us some of what you found during the lit review and background research phase of your study? Yeah, so in addition to what I've talked about with patient outcomes and student-based clinics, as well as uh, personalized medicine, some of the other primary areas that I looked into included what are some of these predictors of baseline status and outcome in general patient populations towards understanding what that might look like within our patient population. There's an emphasis that impairment is not always a one-to-one exchange with disruption and participation. So There's more and more research on the importance of evaluating other factors within therapy. And so this kind of laid the groundwork to some of these other variables that we really wanted to investigate in our own patient population. Other areas included um, investigation into occupation-based and occupation-centered rehabilitation, which is a hot topic in hand therapy right now, hand therapy being uh, commonly criticized for coming from a more biomechanical approach. And really, the literature is supporting the use of occupation-based intervention, but the discussion of what this looks like and practice patterns sort of laid some of the groundwork also in evaluating our own intervention practice patterns. Uh, The third main topic was taking a look at mental health. Focusing on the psychosocial aspects of injury and hand therapy has gained increasing awareness. And so really understanding some of that background research as well as current approaches was important. It sounds like you really had to have a complete understanding of hand therapy, student clinics, and also underserved and marginalized populations. Yeah, that was that's something else I didn't bring up, but understanding what potential barriers to engagement are, especially in some of these marginalized populations. And that included not only lit reviews, but also anecdotal information. So therapists over at Millican or other people that we consulted raised the concern that, okay, this is a population that does have a higher self-discharge rate, as well as some barriers to engagement within therapy. And how are we going to address that within our student clinic? And so trying to understand what is out there, both in clinical experience as well as in the literature, towards starting to answer that question. And when you say self-discharge rate, do you mean the patient's not completing all of their therapy? Yeah, they go ahead and stop coming to therapy or either letting us know directly or no call, no show before that it's recommended that they're ready for discharge from therapy. Can you describe your research design and process for us? How did you really set this all up? Yeah, so this was a post hoc study intentionally. 
So the very first step was starting data collection from the start of the student clinic. And I wasn't um, as involved in this initial process. This was uh, started before my time, but then iterative changes throughout. So the very first step was deciding, okay, what outcome measures are we wanting to look at? How can we capture these patient experiences? In doing this, this was creating not only a protocol for our student clinic, but also for the research. So one strength, I think, of this approach is that the same protocol is used whether a patient consents to have their data stored in our database or whether they're um, just coming to receive services. Either way, the data collection is the same, showing to us that these are the things that are important to know for therapy and therefore important within our research. So this study in particular took a look at students seeing from spring 2018 all the way through the end of fall 2019 um, and included every patient who consented and had complete data sets, which was almost every patient. In terms of what we ended up looking at, we included our entire initial evaluation battery, which in terms of uh, standardized assessments included the DASH or disabilities of arm, shoulder, and hand, the PROMISE global health measure as well as paying on a, the numeric paying assessment scale, so from zero to 10, a workability scale, so rating workability from zero to 10, and then other derived questions, including how their symptom outlook was, or physical demand of work, perceptions of their own disruption in terms of priority areas of occupation, what they wanted to work on, and difficulties that they were experiencing since their upper extremity dysfunction. And why did you choose these outcome measures specifically? DASH is a gold standard assessment within the field of upper extremity rehab. So we liked that in terms of it was very easy to be able to translate these results and really communicate them to a broad audience. The PROMISE Global Health Measure is great because it provides two different outcomes. So one is mental health and one is global physical health. So we're able to capture both of those and disruption of those to participation. And that one is increasing in popularity and has shown good validity in conjunction with the DASH. So we liked the combination there. In terms of work, this is an under an uninsured population with very high unemployment rates. So it's important to us to really capture disruption to work and work status and goals oriented around that because this is a really important area of occupation for this population. In terms of pain, we wanted to understand a range of experienced pain. So not just their current pain level, but also the lowest and highest. We're really trying to capture what is this patient experience and trying to get as accurate representation of that pain as we can from that patient. Those are some solid measures and it, it, they really paint a complete picture of participants in your study. You've mentioned personalized medicine a couple of times. How was personalized medicine incorporated into your research and data collection? Yeah, so personalized medicine really takes a look at patient characteristics and is asking the question of, okay, based on these patient characteristics, what category can I put them in? So what patient characteristics are predictive of not improving in therapy, staying the same, or getting better? Or what patient characteristics are anticipating higher disability or lower experience disability? So really asking those questions towards identifying some of those characteristics so we as therapists can maybe anticipate and better cater therapy towards this group of patients. I love that. And this leads really well into the next question, I think. You're able to look at different characteristics of your clients and you also tracked 
different interventions and approaches to therapy and kind of seeing the relationship between those sounds so exciting. But how did you track the approach that therapists use with each client? We used a novel approach that we developed and we were excited to see that we think it could be a viable option for other clinics. Um, And what we did is we used the uh, OT practice framework, the definitions of intervention approach and type from the third edition to guide our categorization. So every student therapist after an intervention session would document in our normal documentation note the amount of time that they spent within each intervention and not yet categorizing, but just what the heck they did with this patient, how much time they spent. Then those student therapists went ahead and um, used that to calculate percentages of time that was spent within that therapy session on each intervention type and approach. This was then discussed and agreed upon by the supervising peer mentor as well as the supervising therapist. So threefold to come to a consensus, but I think most important is it captures the clinical reasoning of the treating therapist. So it would be difficult for just an observer to say, oh, this is coming from you know, the restorative approach, when perhaps that student therapist had intended it from a compensatory approach. So really having this active discussion about it, I think deepens awareness of practice patterns, intentionality, and rationale for different treatments. So it, it sounds like an, uh, an additional step in the therapy process or the OT process, but it sounds like there's some clear benefits to including this step. Yeah, I think besides just building that awareness more broadly, it allowed us to study these practice patterns and the efficacy of those within the clinic. So a lot of times research is taking a look at a single intervention or maybe one or two comparing, but this is more broadly and less restrictive looking at what are all of these approaches within OT and how can we use the outcomes to then guide our practice patterns. What did you end up finding in your results? Yeah, so ultimately, we were very excited. We're able to achieve meaningful functional change for our patient population, including significant improvements in both reported disability as well as workability. Baseline outcomes were predicted by some diagnosis-related variables. For instance, increased disability was predicted by surgical intervention. However, diagnosis, surgical intervention, time from injury were not predictors from discharge, while work, driving status, mental health, and pain were important predictors. So emphasizing, again, the significance of these other factors in rehabilitation. Another thing we were excited to see was that symptom outlook was an important predictor of global physical health at discharge. And so this really highlights the importance of understanding the patient's perception of their own health and well-being in these outcomes. We found that the use of the modifying ADAPT approach slightly negative impacted work resumption. And I think the biggest impact of this was validating potentially the use of our approach for categorizing intervention type and approach of each session in evaluating practice patterns. So while no other uh, approach or type significantly predicted an outcome, I also would like to note that activity and occupation-based intervention significantly correlated with formal discharge, meaning those who had higher ratios of activity and occupation-based intervention, it correlated with them staying all the way through therapy. So this might be a potential area for future investigation. 
No significant predictors were found for self-discharge, even with evaluation of some anticipated barriers, including driving status, working status with their limited, limited clinic hours, living status with potentially being a caregiver or a single parent, distance from clinic, or even time from injury or baseline disability. None of those, none of them predicted self-discharge status. So for us, this indicates that we are not capturing data that accurately predicts and represents these barriers. So future efforts, we're going to take a look into understanding potentially Maslow's hierarchy of needs, as well as self-efficacy, really with goals of continuing to try and increase engagement and therapy for this population. Those are some fascinating results. To me, what is most interesting about them is that those more typical items that you might find in a medical chart, um, you mentioned like diagnosis, surgical intervention, and time from injury, for example, really fall short in predicting patient outcomes. And there's really more to a client than those surface level categorizations that are in their chart. And it's interesting to see how your results support this. But what would you say this observation and observations from the rest of your results suggests to practitioners working with marginalized populations? Yeah, while diagnosis, surgical intervention, and time from injury are important for informing, say, timing of therapy efforts, precautions, anticipated progress on some of these factors, it's really essential that the focus of intervention is on other aspects of the individual in their life, which includes then capturing those initial evaluation and discharge. We can't just be reporting on some of these other factors. It's also essential to address mental health in a hand therapy setting generally and with support of the importance of this in this population in particular. A work and driving goals were also seen as important predictors and therefore really need to be a focus of intervention as long as the, they're important for that individual beyond just some of the most commonly addressed categories of occupations such as activities of daily living or IADLs. Pain is a key predictor for a lot of outcomes as well, so better understanding of and evaluation of patient experience with pain, um, as well as incorporation of some of the new biopsychosocial approaches to pain, not just from a traditional medical model, can be important and play a key role in uh, discharge outcomes for this population. Thank you. I, I think these results are a testament to the importance of a generalist OT background and generalist OT skills in all settings. Hand therapy, I think, is historically viewed as one of the most specialized areas of occupational therapy. But like you mentioned, just because you're working in hand therapy doesn't mean you can't provide mental health intervention or occupation-based intervention. And those are some of the most important interventions to provide to, to ensure positive outcomes for your clients. Um, so that's a really interesting highlight. Very well summarized, Matt. Yes, exactly. So what would you say to someone who already works in a student clinic or is trying to establish one and wants to ensure that they decrease experience disability and increase the participation in their patients? I think first and foremost, it's important to get data capture consistently and from the start. And this requires a team approach. So Everyone on the same page of what's important, what is it that we're wanting and needing to capture, and how can we do this consistently and in a way that is not obtrusive to care. We're already in an under-resourced situation, so we don't want to be more burdensome. But this is necessary and vital to really demonstrate our efficacy, as well as to make changes. So for sure, we are serving our patient population as well as we can. 
asking those questions ahead of time and putting those in place from the start is recommended. Or even if a clinic is already going, discussion of things that they have noticed and allowing those questions then to guide this data capture and guide these research questions. And so if someone listens to this and says, wow, this WashU student hand clinic is amazing. I want to implement this model into my own student clinic. Could could they do that? Or what would you say to someone who wants to do that? Absolutely. Please reach out. We would love to talk more about this. And I think it's in a very obtainable model. And I think we are more than happy and excited to talk about it and would love to collaborate to even improve this model towards continuing to increase access for to care for this population. So if someone does want to reach out and collaborate, who should they contact? Yeah, please feel free to reach out to myself. My email is mhubbuck, H-U-B-B-U-C-K, at wustl, W-U-S-T-L dot E-D-U, or our uh, faculty sponsor, who would also be excited to talk about this, uh, this is Vicki Cascudas. Her email is cascudas, K-A-S-K-U-T-A-S-V at wustl.edu. Melanie, I want to ask you if you could share a clinical example or a story that sticks out to you of a client who experienced a positive health outcome in your clinic. I have a patient who jumps right to mind. I think we all end up getting those, I imagine. This individual was experiencing a shoulder tendinopathy, and this was severely disrupting this individual's ability to work. And this was a major problem. This person was the main income provider for the household, was a care provider, not ready or able yet to retire. So it really was essential that we address these problems, address these limitations, and from a preventative approach, make sure that this individual had the tools to be able to continue work in the future should this come up again. With this individual, we did a lot of work on biomechanical education, as well as work task modifications, tons of work task simulations, working to really making sure this individual was able to do their job after some of these acute symptoms started to decrease, and making sure that this individual had the long-term tools to be able to use again. And that was the goal in terms of did that work out. We ended up following up with this patient six months after, who reported that They did indeed experience another flare-up, but were able to employ these tools towards management and was continuing to work. So that was great to hear. Yeah, that sounds like the best outcome of therapy anyone could ever want, that they achieve discharge and when obstacles come up again, they are now able to use those interventions or techniques that you worked on in therapy on their own. Okay, Melanie. I think at this point, everyone in our field has heard of evidence-based practice, but I find it really interesting how you use the term evidence-informed practice. Can you tell us what the difference between these two is? Yeah, this is a favorite topic of mine. Evidence-based practice is really using traditional clinical research to drive practice, and this includes the use of randomized control trials, case studies, and other such research. This is important, it's vital, and it plays a key role. However, it can be somewhat restrictive, and that's where evidence-informed practice comes in. Evidence-informed practice more broadly recognizes the importance of other information 
in driving practice. So this includes the use of outcome measures, say in your initial evaluation, to inform practice. That occupational interview is then going to inform your treatment efforts and focus of intervention. The other aspect of this thing is using theoretical knowledge to inform practice. So for instance, principles of tissue healing and physiology and guiding progression within hand therapy, a setting would be an example of evidence-informed practice. I love that. And to me, it's almost like a a call or a challenge to continue to improve. Like evidence-based practice, of course, is great and it's an awesome goal and it's been an emphasis in our field, but we can still do even better and, and take it a step farther. I completely agree. And I think this is the underlying principle for translational research in which we're really taking some of these principles from basic science and asking the question of how can we use this evidence to inform clinical practice. I love that. Okay, Melanie, I want to ask you now some more personal or opinion questions about everything you've accomplished these past couple of years. First is a really good one. What have you enjoyed most about your project? The thing I have enjoyed the very most about this project is the integration of clinical observations as well as data towards a deeper understanding of this population that I have come to really love, as well as am intrigued by and want to continue to better support. And what's been difficult about this process? I think uh, difficulty comes from It's a strength as well as a difficulty. So we're asking for natural data capture in this clinic. But with that, it means that A, everyone's got to be on the same page. And B, there's the cases of missing data, right? Because clinical life goes on and these are the things that are important. And so then dealing with that on the end of doing these formal research projects can be somewhat of a challenge in managing. Uh, The other challenge is just this was a large amount of data to really distill what are our key factors. And so just management of large data, I think, is always a bit of an undertaking. Definitely. How will this research and everything you've done with the student hand clinic influence your future practice and career decisions? I plan to use uh, evidence-informed practice throughout my career, as well as really have seen the importance of evaluating our outcomes, whether it's for dissemination or just iterative changes and informing our practice patterns. So I plan to implement that within my own practice, especially whether or not as a student-based clinic, all clinics are working with a limited number of resources. So this, using this to get the most bang for our buck, so to speak. So how can we get the most efficacious changes with these limited resources? In terms of future career decisions, hand therapy has absolutely stolen my heart. And being involved in this clinic, this research, as well as great mentors on field work has created a great launch pad for me to join this great field. What do you hope current occupational therapy practitioners take away from your findings and what you've shared today? I think it comes down to three main points. So my first is research into Therapy practice and intervention patterns is beneficial and vital and is obtainable. So this is very doable towards maximizing therapeutic efforts and increasing efficacy for any patient population. I think an example of the importance of this was with our self-discharge rates. We're an under-resourced clinic. We have limited resources towards future programming. And before this study, I think if you had asked any of us in the student clinic, we would have anticipated transportation 
or potentially our own scheduling, um, work status, things like that, we're going to be the biggest barriers. And not to say that they're not on an individual level, but the law of large numbers is telling us that's not the most effective use of our funds towards future programming to increase engagement for this population. The second point is impairment and disruption in participation is not a one-on-one exchange. And so a focus on other patient factors beyond medical related data in hand therapy really demonstrates the most significant outcomes. And this is something that I think has been well established within the field of occupational therapy. And so making sure that we continue to carry this forward. Three is using principles of personalized medicine. We really can predict baseline and discharge outcomes based on patient characteristics. This isn't something that just has to stay within the medical model. It has a really important use within our biopsychosocial model. And in fact, aligns very well with OT principles, valuing these individual characteristics beyond some of these other medical factors in informing treatment and in really guiding our own practice so we can better serve each individual that comes in front of us. I hope all practitioners can incorporate those things. I hope I can one day. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Matt. Of course. Is there anyone you would like to acknowledge or thank in the completion of this research? Yes, a huge thank you to my mentor, Dr. Vicki Cascudas, for guidance and discussion throughout this whole project, as well as Dr. Chang for consultation. Dr. Rose McAndrew for her mentorship within the clinic, as well as management of our data in conjunction with our research assistant, Eliza Hendricks. Leah Fang, the other OTD student from our cohort in our lab, who provided invaluable support as both my colleague and my friend throughout this experience. The rest of the hand clinic student therapists for commitment to quality patient care and improving the lives of the patients we serve, as well as my family for unwavering support and listening ears throughout my graduate school career. Thank you very much, Matt, for the opportunity to share my work. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. You truly have an all-star team. I personally love the hand clinic. I think Vicki and Rose are awesome mentors um, in that clinic. And I have a lot of good friends at that clinic as well. So props to all you guys. (laughs) Thank you very much, Matt. Of course. Okay, last question. This is our little golden nugget segment, if you will. What's one thing you've learned from this project or just from your time here at WashU that you wish everyone knew? Please participate in research, not just in terms of getting out there in journals, but just to inform your own clinical practice. It's it's accessible, it's obtainable, and it doesn't need to be this daunting elite group. It's important and it's vital towards advancing our practice and making sure that we best serve our patients. Awesome. I love that. Melanie, thank you again so much for your time and for this interview. It's been fun and it's also been such a rich amount of information for people. Thank you so much again for this opportunity, Matt. Yeah, of course. Thanks for listening to How to OT. Tune in next time for another episode where we bring accessible and consumable research straight to you. I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. We're also joined in this interview by Melanie's cats, who are so friendly, which I haven't seen in cats in the past, but they're a delight. Sorry, I lost it. Yeah, you do all that again.
Everybody sour like a lemon tree I'm just smiling down upon my enemies Do the shit and love it on a daily Say you hate your job but you'll never leave, never leave I think that was the bulk of it Brain fart, um I love that so much. That's seriously, that's so cool. Cause I love my occupation Hey, I'm on vacation Every single day, every, every single day Hey, I'm on vacation Every single day, cause I love my occupation Hey, I'm on vacation If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it <laughs> That's all I want to say.